Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Today's world is more connected than ever, yet it simultaneously seems more fractious as well. First, our interpersonal relationships since the rise of the internet have broken open our social dialogue in new ways, both for good and ill. Next, the human family around the world is also facing immense ecological challenges. I'm writing this on a day when the world's media is consumed with coverage of the fires in the Amazon rainforest and fires in Angola and the Congo rage on as well. Further, we seem racked with endless warfare and political drama. Life can be tiring. Are there ways to find sustenance and peace when we are exposed to so many problems each day? Today's conversation is with Lama Paulden Drolma, author of the brand new book, Love on Every Breath, Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy, from New World Library. Lama Paulden Droma is a Western teacher trained by Tibetan Buddhist masters. She is the founder of Sukha City Foundation. She is a licensed psychotherapist, spiritual teacher, coach, and has studied Buddhism in the Himalayas with some of the preeminent Tibetan masters of the 20th century. She was authorized to become one of the first Western Lamas by Kalu Rinpoche. In this conversation, Lama Paulden and I discuss her Episcopalian upbringing, her discovery of Buddhism, and a method of meditation she calls Love on Every Breath, a seven-step Tonglen meditation for opening one's heart. Tonglen is an ancient meditation that has been practiced in the Himalayas for centuries, and the book Love on Every Breath shows how it can be relevant to us here and now. If you are curious about what it's like to leave the U.S. and study for years on a retreat, this conversation will fascinate you as well. If you like this show, you can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast, or at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. You can find Lama Paulden's work online at lamapaulden.org which will link you to her other social media sites as well. You can find a link to purchase her book, Love on Every Breath, in the show notes. So without further delay, please enjoy this conversation with Lama Paulden Drolma. Lama Paulden, welcome to Classical Ideas. It's so great to have you here. Uh, my pleasure. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Well, uh, I'm Lama Paulden Droma. People call me Lama Paulden, and Lama is a title that is similar to the title Roshi or priest or rabbi, something like that, uh, within Buddhism, within Tibetan Buddhism in particular. So I've been a Lama since 1986, and that means 
uh, teaching meditation philosophy, guiding people in their spiritual practice and meditation, etc. And I have a center in Marin County, California called Sukha City Foundation. And my website is lamapaldin.org. Awesome. Well, today we're going to talk about a bunch of things. Uh, we're going to talk about your newest book from New World Library titled Love on Every Breath, Tonglen Meditation for Transforming Pain into Joy. But I always like hearing a little bit about the backstory of my guests. And I'm wondering if we can go back in time a little bit and hear a little bit about your like, you know, your origin story. Sure, sure. Awesome. Um, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in California, Northern California, in Marin County, Bay Area. Excellent. What was your uh, spiritual tradition like growing up? So I was uh, raised in the Episcopalian Church here, and I very much love that. I still, uh, you know, love that tradition, love the Christian tradition, and the Episcopalian's been very positive for me. But I also, as a teenager, wanted to study many other traditions as well and go really much more deeply into spiritual practice. Cool. Were you inspired by Alan Watts at all growing up? I was a little young for him, although his houseboat was right near me, <laughs> where oh. he lived, was right nearby. I'm a little young for that, but I was very much inspired by Gandhi and um, Yogananda and other uh, spiritual figures, you know, that I came across from the age of about 14 on. Cool. Let's talk a little bit about that age. So I know that today you're one of the first Western lamas in Tibetan Buddhism, as you mentioned. And I'm curious about that path out of the childhood tradition, which you loved, of Episcopalianism, um, to your first exposure to Buddhism. When did you discover Buddhism? How did it click with your way of viewing the world as a young person? Oh, well... It, it didn't really happen like that. It happened differently. So I've always been since about, you know, 9, 10, 11, very interested in all spiritual traditions. And mm -hmm. I really feel there's so much richness and beauty in each tradition. So that's always drawn me. And then I was exposed in school in ninth grade to Religions of Man by Houston Smith. And then I just began exploring in different traditions and was studying and practicing in Sufism and mystical Christianity on my own. In Sufism, I had teachers, but mystical Christianity on my own, I studied in college, a comparative mysticism program I put together myself. So I was, and I was doing a lot of yoga, and a friend uh, at the time when I was, uh, you know, just 22 or something, taught me Zazen from mm -hmm. the Zen tradition, and I did that every day for some time. And then when I was 25, after studying and feeling, you know, a lot of growth and purification and uh, joy from be meditating and practicing in these different traditions, I started praying to really meet my teacher because I felt at that age, like, I really, I felt like I had a teacher somewhere that I hadn't met yet and that it was... Uh, a relationship that was going to be very, very important. And so I started longing for that. And so I prayed to Mary and nearby where I was living, there was uh, a Mary garden at a convent. And I used to go into the little garden and pray to Mary in front of the statue. And then lo and behold, 
a couple months later, a Sufi friend kind of dragged me off to a talk in San Francisco by an old <laughs> Tibetan master. This was in the late 70s. And it, this old Tibetan master, within five minutes of being in his presence, I knew he was my teacher. Mm. And I just thought, well, he's Tibetan Buddhist, whatever he is, I guess it's fine for me because I know he's my teacher. So that's actually what really cemented my relationship with Buddhism. And then I went to the Himalayas, studied with him for some years, you know, many years. And anyway, so that was the beginning. What was the teacher's name? Kalu Rinpoche, K-A-L-U Rinpoche. He was a very highly respected 20th century master. Oh. Uh, yeah. Excellent. Well, I know also the, the title Rinpoche is very symbolic as well, and people who are listening may not know what that term means. What is Rinpoche? Because if you see that title across Tibetan Buddhism, you might um, think, oh, do all these people have the same last name and things like that? Right, you know? right. So Rinpoche, like Lama, is a title. It's a title that, quote-unquote, is higher than a Lama. Rinpoche means precious one. Mm. Okay. So it's it's Tibetan means precious one. It's it's a lama, but a very kind of high level lama. Usually they're a reincarnated person from being a teacher and lama in their last life. So there's a trajectory there. So anyway, there are many Rinpoches from all the various lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. So yeah. Excellent. Okay, so I want to talk for in a few minutes about your retreats, but before we get into that, um, so you're part of the Tibetan tradition, which is also called Vajrayana, as opposed right. to the other yanas or vehicles of Buddhism, like Theravadan or Mahayana. Um, what do you think it is about the Tibetan Vajrayana tradition that kept you engaged as opposed to wandering into the other traditions? Oh, that's such a profound question, actually. So Vajrayana is part of Mahayana. It is a Mahayana tradition. It's a subset of Mahayana. Okay. But they also do classify it as the three yanas because Vajrayana includes all of Mahayana and then it includes other stuff that isn't there. So I think, you know, to be completely frank, I have just a very karm strong karmic connection with this uh, these lineages of Vajrayana and the meditations in them. But it's been so amazing over my 40 years of practice, the meditations just keep unfolding themselves. Mm. Like even meditations I've done for, you know, 30, 40 years, just keep unpacking and revealing more and more what they're really all about and what's really happening. So that's been an amazing process. And I think what really has kept me engaged is that the meditations, the practices actually work. And the philosophy is so profound that is connected with it. So all meditation in Tibetan Buddhism is based on philosophical principles. All of Buddhism is like that. And so that union of the philosophy and the meditation and the depth of that has been really, really deeply rewarding. And then the love that I experienced from all of my teachers, the love, the compassion, and their incredible field and of wisdom. 
Excellent. Well, and I know that as I'm reading the book, I'm seeing some other names that I recognize from other traditions, like you cite a quote from uh, Shunryu Suzuki Roshi from the Zen tradition. Um, what are you? What do you mostly glean from other traditions that you use, even though you don't consider yourself like a Zen practitioner? Like, how do you do? You, do you like mix the traditions? Oh, no, I don't mix them at all. I I completely study and practice in Vajrayana. But I have, like I said, a deep love for all traditions. And um, one of my very closest colleagues, Lou Richmond, who's a Zen master, and I have other close colleagues who are Zen masters and teachers as well. You know, I love the stories they have from Zen. From there. <laughs> yeah. I, and I studied, my first Buddhist practice was from Suzuki Roshi, was from one of his top disciples, who was my first Buddhist teacher, Bill Kwong Roshi. So... Uh, I have a love of that in the stories, and the zazen is very, very close to what we ca- call Mahamudra or Dzogchen in our tradition, and they are both Mahayana traditions, and there's a huge similarity between Vajrayana and Zen. They're really based on Nagarjuna and many of the same philosopher, Buddhist philosophers. So, But, you know, each has their flavor, and I think that's what you're getting at. So for me, the stories in Zen are just you know, like uh, nectar for the soul. Nice. Um, okay, so what age did you go to the Himalayas? So I met Kala Rinpoche that uh, fateful evening in San Francisco in 77 in the fall. And that spring, I went to India because he said we could come study with him there. So, yeah, in the spring of 78, I went to India for the first time. Excellent. And was that the did you stay for the three year retreat immediately in 78 or did you like kind of bounce back and forth? (laughs) No, I I stayed for four months studying in his monastery and also going to the monastery of His Holiness Karmapa the 16th and meeting him and being with him. So I studied there four months, came home, and then, I don't know, um, about a year or two later, I moved to Bhutan in the far eastern Himalayas, and then when I lived there, it was very uh, close, I mean, not because cars on windy roads. It took quite a few <laughs> hours, but it was geographically very close to Darjeeling and Sikkim, where Kalarimshi and Karmapa were, were. So I spent a lot of time with them as well as in Bhutan meditating, etc. And that was until 82 when I ended up going into the three-year retreat. And I, I did that on, my teacher had a retreat center, still does, on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia in Canada. And that mountain, uh, that island has a mountain. And on top of that mountain on the island is the retreat center where I did my three and a half year retreat. Excellent. Okay. So you also mention in the book that you spent your three years on retreat with two awakened women teachers, correct? Oh, no, not in there, but they are in our lineage. They were from 11th century Kashmir. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so my the we received two lineages from primary from Kala Rinpoche. And one of those that was kind of a secret inner lineage in Tibet for a thousand years, practiced by great high Rinpoches and, and stuff, you know, mostly yogis and yoginis in cave retreats. That lineage that Kalarimshe brought to us 
the two primary teachers that it traces back to are women. Excellent. Who are they? Unusual. Unusual. Very unusual. Yeah. Who are they? Well, one is called Naguma that this love on every breath practice comes from, originally from her and has been transmitted orally down to the present day until I've fully written it down. And the other was called Sukha City, which is, I named my Buddhist center af- after. So that's a Sukha City is Sanskrit, S-U-K-H-A-S-I-D-D-H-I. So sh- both of those women attained full awakening at that time. Okay. All right. So um, when I first received this book, the word Tonglen on, in the title stood out to me because it's new to me, and I have never mm-hmm. dis- I've never discussed it on this show. So what does this title, uh, this it, this word in the subtitle Tonglen? What does that mean? Excellent question. Yes, Tonglen means taking and sending, and so the heart of this practice. There's steps eight steps in the practice and that helps us get to the point where we're fully you know able to do this meditation and you can do any step any time for 10 or 30 seconds or you can sit on the cushion and do it for as long as you like and or do the entire meditation all the steps on the cushion but the heart of the meditation is this taking and sending which is taking in actually opening ourselves to be aware and have compassion and love for people suffering, ourselves, others, everyone in the whole world, the whole human race, humans and animals, everyone. And to open our heart to be aware of the the suffering and to bring compassion and love to that. And there's a transformational practice that happens in the heart chakra in this meditation where the suffering is transformed and liberated into love and healing energy, into awakened love and healing energy, and then sent back into uh, whoever we're doing the Tonglen for ourselves or others or the whole world or certain group of people. So it's that taking in a sense that that becoming aware, breathing in the suffering, and it's instantly transformed in the heart chakra by a a brilliant light and a lightning bolt. And there's a symbol in the heart that we meditate on as the uh, ever-present, awakened divine um, awareness that is at the heart of each and every one of us. And that is what does the transformation and this may sound challenging or difficult like oh i could never do that but i taught a three-year-old to do this and i talk about that in the book Mm -hmm. and she was able to do it fine so with the step-by-step instructions it's very easy to follow and it's, it's very liberating and the transformation of our own suffering and what we feel from others uh, their suffering and transforming that into joy, into well, into love, which then automatically brings joy with it. Excellent. So well, that's so it's so you know uh, rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, how did you come to land on this specific title? Because I know in, early in the book you mentioned that love on every breath is sort of like a. a an interpretation that you came up with of Tonglen, right? 
No, it's the title I gave to the Naguma Tonglen practice. Oh, okay, okay. So she gave this enlightened woman of the 11th century Kashmir Buddhist Mahasiddha, gave this uh, meditation, and I just call it love on every breath. In Tibetan, they call it extraordinary Tonglen. Gotcha. Okay, so... The reason I do um, this show is because it sort of like grew out of a religious studies high school class I was teaching in Missouri. And, oh, nice. Yeah. So it, it, this is like a way for me to uh, get together with people and talk about some of the things that they practice and study and write about and then try to boil it down as clearly as possible for the students that I teach. Um, so if you were like coming into my class you would meet tons of teenagers in the Midwest who were interested in Buddhism. Uh, they've they've loved meeting Tibetan monks in, in our school presentations. Um, a few live in Kansas City, and they've come and talked to us. And if you were standing in front of these like very curious 18-year-olds, how would you describe the process on Love on Every Breath to them to make it uh, understandable to you know America's young people? Fantastic question. First, before I started doing that, I would tell them that from a Buddhist point of view, that who we are, who we truly are, is a union of wisdom and love, wisdom and compassion. And that who we truly are is awakened, pure, incredible beings. And that we're not in touch with the reality of the unbelievable magnificence of who we really are. And that the spiritual path helps us uncover that. And this this is called our Buddha nature, our inherent awake nature that is wisdom and love. And I would explain to them that this meditation is about transforming suffering, but that it's based on that, that we all are actually, uh, have, you know, um, awakened beings. We don't know it is one of the ways it's said, or... There's the seed of complete awakening within us that through our meditation and practice on the spiritual path, we bring to fruition. And then I would go into the steps of the practice for them. Should I go ahead and talk about that? Uh, maybe list them as, uh, you know, you can give a little bit of detail, but it, they're so well described in the book as well. Okay, so the first one is resting in open awareness and then seeking refuge in awakened sanctuary. So that means calling on, if you're in a Christian tradition, God, maybe God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, or could be Muhammad or Allah or the Buddhas. So seeking refuge in awakened sanctuary, bringing in this awake divine presence to be with us, to give us sanctuary. And cultivating awakened mind, is a Sanskrit term actually that's translated as that, that means we enter into our meditation on behalf of all beings everywhere. We're not just doing it for ourselves. We're always entering into our meditation or spiritual practice on behalf of all beings to bring benefit to all beings. And then stepping into love is the next step and very uh, kind of guidance on how to do that. And then, the heart of love on every breath is the taking and sending, and there's a step of starting with yourself, because if we really 
have compassion for ourselves, it opens us up so much more to be able to be there for others. And it's important that we heal and love from the inside out. And we are the center of our experience. So we do the love on every breath for ourselves first, then for others. And then the seventh step is we, because this has been a whole creative imagination meditation where we're visualizing and coordinating it with the breath and Then we let everything go and just dissolve again back to open space awareness like the first step. And then the very last step, we dedicate any and all benefit from the meditation that all sentient beings may be free of suffering and come into who and what they truly are, come to complete and total happiness and liberation. One step that really jumped out at me as I was reading the book is the one that you call taking and sending for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that involves, like, from my interpretation, involves imagining our ordinary self in front of us and contemplating the pain and wounds and meeting ourselves with loving awareness. And I've done, I've had some limited experiences in meditation groups and classes for the last several years. And one of the things that I always find myself doing while I'm on the cushion in a room with other people is I sort of feel like I'm looking at myself. Like I feel like there's two of me and I'm sitting there staring across at like where would, where another person would be, but it's like me. So I'm like looking back and forth at myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get stuck on this because I feel like there's a lot in there that I'm still working on um, that is sort of like blocking me from moving on to the next steps of, you know, I feel like pretty good about my relationships with other people, but like, I feel like there's so many things that I'm still blocked on. I feel like I'm stuck on step five. Mm. Well, I find that step five, uh, cultivating compassion and loving kindness for oneself through all my years of teaching this meditation, that is by far and away the hardest step for everybody. Because for some reason in the West, and it's, I think, maybe particularly true in America, we really are very, very self-critical. Yeah. And we run, the, you know, a lot of times this constant barrage on ourselves of how we could have been better and what we sh- should do and how we're maybe not good enough and la, la, la. And this is very uh, counterproductive. And to really meet ourselves with kindness, people might think that's self-centered. It's not at all. True kindness, true compassion for oneself really leads to deep inner healing. And I think all of us have blocks like you're describing you feel in yourself. And the spiritual path is to unwind and liberate those blocks. At the same time, myself, I'm also an advocate of psychotherapy. Not that we all have to be in therapy for the rest of our lives, but that at times different things come up and it can be very, very helpful for a spiritual path to help unwind the blocks to do some psychotherapy at different points. And in terms of what you described in your meditation, I think you could put that to good use with this particular love on every breath practice. And But in general, when you're meditating, like resting in open awareness, just, you know, quiet without any visualization, 
you should try to just let go of that and let your mind be completely open like space. Because mm. yeah. to get caught up in that kind of thing when you're just basic, like resting, basic, I mean, just quiet sitting meditation, which is anything from basic because it's the beginning and the end of everything. Right. But, you know, so I don't mean it in that sense, but, you know, that's the important point for, yeah, basic meditation. Yeah, that's something that I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to do better about because I'll go through these like binge cycles where I'll like meditate every day for like 12 days and then I'll miss a day and then I'll be like, oh, well, I screwed that all up and then I won't go for like a month and then I'll do it again for two more weeks and I'll feel really good about it, but then I'll miss a day and like, I go on these boom and bust cycles, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that habit yeah. forming. I'm in that very difficult habit forming stage. Right, right. One of my students, I thought, said something brilliant about this stage. She said, I just had to make it non-negotiable with myself, like brushing my teeth twice a day. Mm, yes. So she said she made it non-negotiable inside of herself. It just is going to happen, you know. Yeah, I think I need to just do that as well, just set myself a rule. Because like, I managed to go running five times a week. I managed to brush my teeth every day. I, right. You know, good, good. Yeah. I, there are things yeah. that I manage to do as long as I make it a priority to do it instead of like allowing myself to just miss it and then keep missing it over and over and over. Right. And the thing is, though, to not get too self-critical when we do fall down, just pick ourselves up and move on and forget the self-criticism. Yeah, that that really gets in the way for us. It, it doesn't help at all. We think it helps. We think like berating ourselves is going to help. It does not help. So we just, when we fall, we all fall down at certain times, whether it's we don't get to the meditation cushion or we lose our temper or whatever it is. We all have these things that happen, you know, on a pretty regular basis in one way or another. But we just, it's much more helpful and productive to just pick ourselves up and start again. Remember why we want to do this and just, you know, move forward. And have it be like I said, I think this idea of non-negotiable is a really good idea for the meditation to really get that everyday practice. And I tell people it's not the length you do every day, it's the regularity that's so incredibly helpful. So even 10 minutes every day is better than you know, four hours once a week or whatever. Right. Yeah. My friend Mato Moore Roshi, uh, he's a abbot at Karinji Monastery in Wisconsin. He had a very similar advice. He's like, Greg, you just need to do five minutes a day. If you're going to like, instead of doing these like retreats once every six months where you do it all day, you just need to do it every day for like five minutes. That's better than the once every six months thing. Right. Right. You know, and it's easier for people to get that in place. Yeah. It's easier to get five or ten minutes, and the ego that is resisting meditation is like, okay, it's just five or ten, you know, whatever you decide, five minutes, ten minutes, you know, 15, 20. And then, you know, the ego knows I'm not going to have to sit here all day. In fact, if you just go to meditation retreats every six months and you don't do so much every day, the ego might think, oh, my God, I did that and I had to sit there all day. Not, I'm not doing that again. You know, and it can build <laughs> yeah. up resistance in the ego. Yeah, it's like whenever you run a marathon and you're under trained, you're like, I'm never running a marathon again. <laughs> You know? Right, 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 right. Something else exactly. That, yeah, something else that stands out to me in the book as well is what you call on the spot variations that can be done yeah. any, anytime, anywhere in a flash. And you know, 
We're all busy. I mean, you live in California, Northern California, and like the Bay Area. It's it's a busy place, and everybody's dealing with their their intense routines. So, I mean, how can you? Uh, so, what would you suggest to people who are resistant to that practice that they can that they're overthinking it? Like, what are some of these on the spot uh, adaptations that you would most suggest um, people like me who are struggling with routine? What would you suggest we try out? Well, to have some familiarity with the steps so that you you know what they are for people reading the book, to read it and gain familiarity. And then once there's a sense of familiarity with that step, just anywhere, anytime, we can just drop into that. Mm. So, for example, <clears throat> and actually lately I was teaching in this maximum security prison or I guess it's not maximum anymore, but a very kind of intense prison here with the death row and everything. And one of the inmates had adapted this step of cultivating an awakened mind. So whenever he starts his exercise or he goes to take a shower or get dressed or eat his food or he goes to one of his study classes in the prison, he thinks, I'm doing this to benefit all beings. May by, by my doing this, may all beings find benefit. And that's just a simple thing we could think in an instant. But it's brought so much meaning and transformation to his life because this is somebody who, you know, had very, very serious crimes in his history that he had done to people. And now he's totally turned that around and he only wants to do good for people. And he brings that that step of cultivating awakened mind to everything he does, you know. And so that's an example. Another example is, say, we're just feeling like hassled or out of sorts with ourselves or whatever. We can just drop everything in our mind in an instant and just let everything go and just rest our mind in open awareness. So, but that's very easy to say, but, and we need to familiarize ourselves with doing that on the cushion, then anywhere, anytime we can do it. But everybody can try it. Just let go of all thoughts and just breathe into the body, let go and just open up to, um, feeling like your mind is like the sky and your body is like the sky. Everything is dissolved in space and you're just sitting there in open awareness, you know. And then that is like a reset button on the computer. It resets our mind-body system to be fresh and alert and clear and relaxed simultaneously. Your example of teaching in the prison really just jumped out at me because the subtitle in the book is it says transforming pain into joy and you think about mm -hmm. you think about pain in society and you know a prison does not seem like a pay, a place where joy would be easy to come by do you have any other like experiences of um, you know powerful moments during your teaching in places where joy seems extremely hard to get to Good question. Well, you know, one thing I'll tell you is that comes to mind immediately is that when I was in the prison recently, I came in because a friend of mine who's a Buddhist is a chaplain there, and she invited me in. And so she's been working with uh, various groups of men throughout the prison for eight years. And this one group she'd been working in depth with for quite a long time. 
And as soon as I sat down and we began to meditate, and we did the, I led the whole meditation for them, the energy in the room, the depth of the concentration and stillness and the really good feeling in the room was amazing to me. It's just because, you know, once these guys that are in that situation have a helping hand of certain teachers and chaplains and people that volunteer or work in the prison and they want to turn their lives around and they have the right kind of help to do that, it's just unbelievable. It's just so moving and so touching. And these guys had already were already strongly, you know, were already on that path. They had already turned their lives around. They had already been praying and meditating. And some of them go to the different spiritual groups, like they go to the Catholic group or, you know, the Zen group. The, you know, they go to study different things and meditate in different ways. But I was blown away by the beauty of the energy of their meditation. Wonderful. Well, I'm curious if there's anything um, like messages in the book that we didn't get to talk to, uh, didn't get to talk about today that you wanted to suggest for the audience before we uh, wrap up. I think two things, Greg. One is we all know we're facing very, very challenging times for humanity right now. Indeed. And a lot of divisiveness and a lot of, um, you know, pretty, um, you know, just difficult situations we're facing and having to try to come to terms with and deal with. So this book offers two things at this time that are the primary, I think. And one is with all the divisiveness and hatred throughout our planet, we are not going to solve our global crises unless we can cooperate and actually have a positive regard or at least like neutral, you know, open regard with each other where we can work together. And we need to open our hearts to ourselves and others, not in any sloppy sentimental way, but in a way that is actual and that works so that we can begin to cooperate with each other. And that the book really, really helps us to open our hearts to ourselves and others at this critical time in our human history when we're all, you know, in some ways all of us are having a hard time if we're awake to what's happening because, you know, it's painful what's happening with humanity right now. So that's one thing. The other thing we all need during this time is deep inner sustenance. We need to be able to connect with a place inside of ourselves that really sustains and nourishes us, as well as our friends and family and our churches and synagogues and whatever, wherever else we get nourishment and sustenance. But at, at the, we also really need to be able to tap into that inside any time. And Love on Every Breath really brings us to that. I couldn't agree more um, because the last couple of days I've been in sort of like a downward spiral in my mood regarding like some of the ecological crises that have been in the news um, this end of August of 2019. And so I appreciate that, uh, that closing sentiment. Um, I know that you said at the beginning of our time where people can find you online, but do you want to remind the audience where they can find you if they want to know more about your work? Sure. LamaPaulden.org. So L-A-M-A 
P-A-L-D-E-N, LamaPalden.org, and the book is Love on Every Breath. And there's various information, and people will be able to listen to this and other interviews there as well. Excellent. Well, Lama Paulden, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure having you. It's been great talking with you, Greg, and all the best to you. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.